Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Back everyone to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Lee Pierce, and I am the host for the channel in language and the channel in media and communications. And I'm very excited today to welcome Justin Eckstein and Donovan Conley, who are the editors of a brand new book hot off the presses entitled Cookery, Food Rhetorics and Social Production, which came out just last month from the University of Alabama Press. I'm excited to welcome the authors, discuss all of the awesome things discussed in this book. And also for those of you who have been participating in a little pandemic cookery yourself, this should be a book that really resonates at the current moment in time. So let's welcome everyone. Donovan, Justin, are you okay? And our first name's all right. Yes and yes. Hi, Lee. All right. Hi. Oh, it's so great to talk to both of you. And you're over on the Pacific Coast. So we are um, we are like occupying two different temporalities right now, which is always kind of weird to me. Yeah, no, different time zones, different geography. Yeah. Perfect. Um, The whole deal. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. First name's great. And yes. Great. Well, I would love to hear um, from either one of you, whoever wants to go first. Let us know more about yourself, what your deal is, and then uh, maybe a little bit about how the book came to be and what you love most about cookery. Sure. I'll start. Uh, I'm Donovan Conley, and I've been uh, a professor of rhetoric and cultural studies at UNLV for a bit. I got there in 2004. Actually, Justin was one of my. master's advisees. Oh, no, he wasn't. That's adorable. I know. Um, do you want to let people know who what UNLV is? Oh, sorry. University of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, the running Rebs. And uh, yeah, so Justin was there getting his master's. We um, we worked together on, on that project, which was a really cool uh, analysis of the evolving nature of apologia um, coming out of sex scandals at the time. And then he went on to get his PhD and then he got a job and we've been kind of doing conferences and co-authoring sort of ever since. And this book really came out of that collaborative, you know, kind of network that we've been developing with a few others uh, where we would, you know, go to conferences and do a a session on this or that, usually food related. Um, And then the book just kind of emerged out of that collaboration. Yeah, that's uh, so funny because Justin is like my food person at conferences. So whenever 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 anyone's like, "Where should we eat?" I'm like, "I don't know. Let's look at Justin's in social media. <laughs> see where to see where to go." <laughs> there are yeah, worse things to know in, in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Justin, do you want to introduce yourself too? Yeah. So my name is uh, Justin Eckstein. Uh, I am at Pacific Lutheran University. I've been there since 2013, and I am a assistant professor of communication and civic engagement. Uh, as Donovan alluded, I was one of Donovan's students. Uh, and yeah, this started, uh, you know, I've always loved food. It is amazing and delicious. Um, and it is true. You can always find me eating. My favorite part of going to conferences is the opportunity to eat at different restaurants in different cities all across the world. Um, we were pretty bummed about RSA getting canceled. We were, um, getting ready to do oh, a food yeah. panel in the food city. It was going to be perfect. Oh, God. Yes. And for the, and for the listeners who don't know, RSA is the Rhetoric Society of America conference and it only happens once every two years. So it's a bummer. Um, obviously not like the greatest disappointment, but just, it, it does suck. I totally yeah. agreed. Yeah. yeah. 
and I'm in Tacoma, right. Washington. So oh, okay, not too not too far from Portland, but yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, Donovan and I wrote this chapter in the Food Rhetorics book when I was, uh, which was a book put out by Rutledge uh, many mm-hmm. years ago when I was in mm-hmm. my. PhD program on my work in farmers, uh, farmers markets. So when I was getting my doctorate, I actually worked in a lot of farmers markets, hustling spices. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. From, straight from the, the spice farms. Yeah, the spice farm. Exactly. And, um, you know, we took that interest. And then when I got to PLU, I met up with the amazing and wonderful uh, Dr. Amy Young, who also happens to love food and wine. And, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, she's one of the authors in the book as well. And she sort of hooked us up with this group of people that became this cadre that we would meet with at conferences that slowly emerged at first into a, a special form in communication, critical cultural studies that Donovan also and Amy and I edited. And then um, we were able to put it together into this book. Well, that what an interesting evolution. That's that's very cool because there's sort of like a parallel. There's like almost like a contradiction between sort of the slow carefulness, which with this book emerged organically, and then some of the sort of top down problems with mass produced food and its rhetorical environment that you kind of point out in the book, which is sort of fun to know. Hmm. Yeah, this is um, I'll just sort of add the last little piece maybe about the book, which is um, to give a like tip of the cap to Justin. So we uh we we did one session. I can't remember was if it was it what year was it, dude? Was it 2015, 16, 17? I can't remember. But we did a a panel at NCA um on dirty rhetorics. That was the title of the panel. And we just thought that it was really it went really, really well. You know, like that rare conference where it was just like everyone was really popping and the audience right, was right. really popping and it was just great. So we thought, let's let's try to capitalize on this. And uh, the first thing we went after was the RSQ special issue, but that didn't happen. Mm. Um, and, and I think we tried to shop it around a little bit, but um, special issues are tough. And Justin is tenacious, and he has his nose in all kinds of corners. And so he went and talked to uh, Dan at Alabama and made the pitch, and, and Dan was interested. They were just starting to get interested in food stuff, so... I thank yes, Justin and shout for that. Shout out to my boy Dan Waterman over at Alabama. We we do a lot of Alabama books on the New Books Network, and he Good. repeatedly comes up as like people's one of people's favorite editors. So thank you to he him. He's amazing. Yeah, we love Dan. Well, let's kick into the book. So you use the word cookery, which for rhetoric people is, a, you know, we obviously know it's always this allusion to like Plato and the philosophers and, and using language is like a, a way to be a charlatan. But you, of course, do cool stuff with it in the, in the book. And you've chosen to not only talk about cookery, but also sort of reclaim this concept of soiled, which is really neat. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, the opening and the framing and what the two of you sort of envision as the contributions of the book? Sure. Yeah. So, um, like I said, the, 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 the panel at NCA was called dirty rhetorics and that was the, the running title or theme or conceit there for a while. And Dan, one of his first comments was like, well, we might want to think a little bit about dirty rhetorics, right? Cause that kind of takes, takes the mind in a certain direction. Um, and so we were just b- bouncing ideas back around, uh, Justin and I back and forth. And for me, it was one of those shower moments where I was like literally having a shower and the word cookery popped in, in my brain. And I thought, wow, this, this could be a good way because I was really interested in like grounding this new kind of exploration in food 
within the tradition, you know, sort of like to affix it into certain disciplinary conversations and tensions and so on. So it made some sense to go back to that original analogy for thinking about rhetoric as, you know, mereness, right? So going back into the Gorgias and thinking about the fact that Gorgias or that Plato was talking about rhetoric disparaging by associating it with food. It's like, let's go back there and kind of like <laughs> retell that story and start there. Um, and so that, that for me is an important sort of conceit of the project, which is to take these wide ranging explorations of food and drink and, you know, intoxication and pornography and strangeness, right? Very kind of broad cultural concerns, but also to, to attach them to some way of thinking about our own tradition and our own discipline and, and, and bringing forward some of those concepts and relevant questions. Yeah, I mean, it's a provocative intro. It was a very fun read, um, especially, I think, for a, a novice, because I'm always reading these books with an eye towards someone who doesn't know much. And I thought that this was a great way to introduce people to like a very long conversation about whether rhetoric is, you know, exactly what you said, like an like adulteration or not, um, that most of us have read over hundreds of thousands of words, and you managed to do in a couple of pages. Uh, so it's really well done. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of take the opportunity to think a bit more broadly and, and materially about rhetoric. That's another right, important right. theme, right? Is the materiality of rhetoric is, is probably where we all began with, like with our interest in food and interest in like the ways that we were talking about food is to be thinking about bodies, thinking about affects, thinking about structures. Um, and mediation is obviously an important part of that, but we were really trying to think about like, you know, physicality and, and, um, the way things move and take shape. Yeah. Justin, do you want to contribute to that before maybe we talk in terms of um, like a specific example we could talk to you about? Because I always get nervous when we head into territory like materiality, because I feel oh, like absolutely. the listener is just going to be like, yeah, what yeah. is that? You know, right. So what I would say is what I like so much about food and why I think it's so interesting is it's just such a great object to get at these questions. And, you know, when I talk to my ordinary friend or ordinary friends, normies or people that aren't academic, <laughs> they always yeah. love they love like one of the first people that I gave a copy of this book to was my buddy in the restaurant industry who just loved it and read it, you know, um, because food sits between culture and nature, that binary in such interesting ways that you can bring up and point out and demonstrate how it illustrates the social. So, for example, you might go to the grocery store and you look around and you see oranges and those seem like natural things, right? Because they're oranges, right? They look like they're from nature. But then when you take a second and take a step back, you recognize that they're the product of this mass industrialized system that's actually a technology and that every bit of it is designed. Or you look at a banana and you recognize that that banana is a cologne and and that banana is a product of arguably the li largest living organism in the world, right? There was some debate about it and what exactly that means and how you can start thinking about those questions with a rhetorical lens. And what does that mean for rhetoric as well when we start thinking about those issues as a question that we should be ready to ask or objects that we should be ready to include in our domain? Very well explained. You, it's almost like you two have done this before. <laughs> I should also maybe add real quick that um, Justin wrote three 
glorious pages on the history of the industrial banana that did not make it into the introduction. So I'm glad he got a chance to talk about it. <laughs> bananas just... day. Bananas. <laughs> it's true. It's plural, right? Yeah. We had a split, but you know. Well, I'm well, you know, who knows? Maybe it's its own paper that yeah, you can joke eventually silence. give to oh. us. I love hearing about ban- banana rhetorics. <laughs> Yeah, well, the book, I mean, the book does a great job. And so let's um, just to kind of wrap up the introduction. So you have this concept soiled and, and it's it's like the one. You, so other than cookery, it seems to be like the other big term that you want to bring up in the. So do you want to say anything about like what you're doing with that or how that's how that's sort of like a framework for thinking about food as this thing that is both rhetorical and also sort of material? Sure. I, th- I think that, um, you know, I, I, we don't spend a ton of time sort of theorizing or conceptualizing that term, but it's an important refrain throughout the whole book. And I think Justin and Amy's chapter in particular really sort of illustrates that, right? I mean, the whole project in in that chapter is to talk about how actual soil can become the site of an argument against the industrial process. Yeah. yeah, Well, let's jump there because I loved this chapter um, and it is called the terroir which looks terroir. like terroir, but in French it's terroir and topoi of the low country. And I love this because my father was a wine guy. Yeah. So we talked a lot about terroir, terroir which I still can't pronounce because my French is terrible. So yeah. So, um, and this was a co-authored piece uh, with, with Anna Marjorie Young, who isn't in the interview, but maybe Justin, you could tell us more about that and what is topoi and what is ter- terroir and how does that sort of do the work you want it to do rhetorically in this chapter? Well, I, I, I could say a couple of things. One, it involved an amazing trip to South Carolina uh, as well. So we got to eat at a bunch of Sean Brock's restaurants, which was incredible. Um, but the idea is that the history of French winemaking actually goes all the way back to attempting to erect some sort of boundaries to distinguish French wine from the globalization of the wine trade that was happening, right? So... What Sean Brock does is when we return to the original soil, he's starting to invent these disassociative argument schemes. So, J- Justin, will you real quick tell people who Sean Brock is? I'm sorry. Sean Brock is a public chef intellectual. This is a term of art that Amy and I coined to describe chefs that are out in the public advocating uh, what they believe is in the public good. Yeah. So like, uh, who's the British Jamie Oliver? Is that that guy's name? Yeah. Jamie Oliver. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure people know who that is. Continue. Sorry. Yeah. And, um, so one of the things that he advocates for is eating local, but what it means to be local means knowing where your food comes from because food has complicated histories, right? In our current environment, when you go back again to the example of the grocery store, Looking at the banana, you don't know where it comes from because much of our food is unplaced and unsourced, right? So by returning to the dirt, we're introducing all these terms of distinction, which enable us to recognize um, where it comes from. And that's where origins of terroir are. I'm probably mispronouncing. I speak zero. It's, I know. And of course, now that I'm thinking about it now, every time I pronounce it, it sounds stupid. But uh, I'm really, I really like the inclusion of this chapter because I think one of the things like where, where rhetoric gets a bad rap just for a general public is that we only ever use rhetoric to describe terms that are exclusionary. So like, of course, when the French people decided to like make certain terms only mean French and everything else was just like derivative, that's when we notice rhetoric, but we only seem to notice it when it's a bad word. 
And so here, sort of like the 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 double-edged sword that like all inclusion is exclusion and like rhetoric isn't some things, but it's everything, I thought was really well pronounced. And I was like that as a, as a rhetoric advocate for like, no, it isn't just cookery in the bad sense. It's also the making and the creation and the production and the germination. And so it's all that stuff too. Yeah. Right. And the, and the, the term we came up with there was polyvalent production, right? Because the food mm-hmm, mm-hmm. system churns out so much and, and a lot of it's terrible, but some of it's great. And, mm-hmm. but the whole business of just kind of, you know, newness and creation and production and, and lo and behold, rhetoric is also in that business of like generating right, appeals right. and right. Creating arguments and messages and, and reaching bodies. So both food and body uh, rhetoric are re- sort of reaching bodies in very interesting, similar ways. So I love yeah, that. Absolutely. I love Justin and Amy's chapter because they are doing exactly what I mentioned a, a bit ago about the kind of grounding, literally sort of grounding um, their analysis in this idea of topos and, and sort of taking a, a term that comes from the culinary world into, and bringing it together with a term that, that goes all the way back to, you know, the ancients. Um, and I think they do a really nice job of also making a really important argument about distinguishing a kind of uh, a historical cuisine and an identity against this sort of homogenizing system. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Justin, do you want to say anything else about that? Well, no, I think it's absolutely important that we start understanding the way that the flow of capital works um, in these globalizing agrologistics, right? If part of the argument of cookery is that we understand how a food system operates to smooth space, right, over sovereign borders and markets, then recognizing ways that we can introduce striated space or differences amongst soil Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that is a rhetorical project worth undertaking, and it's something that chefs can do by introducing it along the sense organ of taste. So I thought that was a really unique uh, site of rhetorical production, and it was a lot of fun to write about and think about and drink. (laughs) Think about and drink about. about Well, and you also make this really cool sort of more specific argument, which I love, which is like, so so Brock, Sean Brock, this, this public intellectual chef writes this book, Heritage, which is his big big cookbook. Mm -hmm. And you say that there's kind of this real irony about heritage because it advocates for like eating local. And yet most of the people consuming the book could not consume it locally. And so the book itself calls for an action that could not be accomplished by most people who consume the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? Or did I just, is that pretty much it? (laughs) Did I just (laughs) summarize it? It is in and of itself really fascinating, right? Because it's this idea that's saying, well, it's about buying into the ideal and the aesthetic and what constitutes Uh the good life. Well, the good life is about eating local, even if you can't buy the particular ingredients or follow the recipes that Brock is suggesting, right? It's sort of like, have you heard of um, Slim uh, Aaron's? No, is that another chef? No, he's like a photographer. Uh, Not. Mm-mm. He took images of the good life for town and country in like the 50s. Oh, and okay. produce like these uh, coffee table books, right? That you'll put out and you'll just look at these people living lives of luxury. And this defines the visual sort of imaginary for some of what the good life might be. Even though it might not ever be attainable or aspirational, it still provides, you know, a set of topoi for which we may aspire and, you know, arrange our sense of self in relationship to, I think of the cookbook as operating in that same sort of way, even if we can't get those particular ingredients, 
he's giving a sort of aesthetic that we should orient ourselves towards eating local within a hundred miles, what that might look like getting vinegars from a particular site, what it means Mm -hmm. to pickle and jar, even if it's not that particular set of ingredients, what it means to cure so on and so forth. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and this also sort of like this idea of like this aesthetic and, and the, the book, not so much being like an actual literal formulation, but more of a, an orientation toward food. Yeah. Um, makes me think of the food pornography chapter. So I don't know if um, anybody wants to say more about Justin's chapter before we move on. Um, well, I would just add quickly the um, sort of piggybacking on that last point. You know, there's a couple of chefs out in, in New York. I think they might be the Carbone guys, but um, these are Italian. Shoot, Italian American or Italian? I think they're Italian American, but they they really do pr- prize Italian food. And you know, as you may or may not know, there's not such thing as really as national Italian food. It's all hyper regional. Right. And so their argument is like, if we're cooking in New York and we are, you know, grabbing whatever we can find in the upper borough area of whatever, and it happens to be, you know local raspberries or whatever like that's as italian as it gets right and and so their argument is like even though we're not cooking sort of traditionally italian meals or using traditional italian ingredients we're using what we have nearby and that that's sort of the spirit of italian cooking and i think that that's sort of the point that they were making in the chapter right is like you can't really do what he's what he's celebrating in this book but you can take the spirit of this uh, uh this notion right of like sort of reclaiming traditional practices and reclaiming a sense of kind of connectedness to your own region, your own sort of history. That's important. I think that's, that's worth sort of thinking about in your own context. Now I'm living in Las Vegas. And so what does that mean here? Right. It's like, you know, cactus tacos and, uh, (laughs) you know, critters tacos or something like this. Um, but you know, what does it mean for you to do that where you are to the extent that you're able? Yeah. And I appreciate that because I mean, obviously like, you have to read rhetorically to get because I I don't think I I, I did an interview recently with, I forget what they said but it was like how there are mul- how 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 you have to be looking at the text with that in mind or else it might seem like impossible where you pick up a book about local cooking and if you take it literally you, you immediately see the hypocrisy but if you think about it as a, as the spirit like you said right thinking about these concepts of topo and terroir then suddenly it's like oh it's it's not meant to be literally this recipe but it's about showing you like a habitus of of doing what you can with what's around you exactly yeah it's that sort of triangulation of food history and right, place. right. Yeah. yeah which is fun this is my favorite kind of stuff like i never would have seen that in a i mean i'm you know i'm pretty good at this but i would have picked up this this cookbook and probably not thought about it that way so i think this chapter does what i love about rhetorical analysis which is i see the book i see the artifact differently now right more materially more sensory very cool chapter yeah cool yeah all right justin you want to say anything else you just want to accept your praise quietly i like to accept my praise quietly (laughs) i know i know you do i'm sure amy is accepting it quietly as well she is amazing yes Wherever Amy is, I appreciate your contributions, Amy. Sorry, I don't mean to. I, I tend to deal with what's right in front of me. I'm yeah, not yeah. a big thinker. <laughs> so let's um, let's talk a little bit about Casey Kelly's chapter on food pornography, because I know we can't t- talk about all the chapters, but this one we kind of all agreed was one to highlight. And then we'll move on to Donovan's chapter. Okay. Um, Justin, you want to take it or you want me to take it? Uh, after you, sir. Sure. I just reread it uh, this morning, I think. 
Um, yeah. You know, we've edited I, these chapters so many times, but you, you often don't see the forest. You're just like, you know, right, trimming right. the branches. So um, it was fun to go back and, and see what he's up to there. And I, I think he gives a really astute analysis of how it is that desire moves from, you know, in between the screen and, and the boardrooms of these marketing corporations and our own sense of hunger and appetite in our own bodies, right? And so what he's up to in this chapter basically is arguing that um, corporate media, food media, um, has replaced or substituted our own, our like the domestic kind of cook, home cook's knowledge about cooking with just pure desire or even like mm. he would say maybe horniness for food right so <laughs> right, horniness right. for food is the sort of the perpetual task of corporate food media is to just keep the viewer keep the body kind of i think he says addled great word sort of addled mm. with desire ineffable desire just wanting more right and so he gives us this really great sweep of analysis of like you know instagram and then he goes to like food network and then he um, and then he, he might remember a couple years back, this YouTube show called Epic Mealtime. It was these Canadian uh -huh. guys who would just go way over the top with uh, their consumption. And what he does is he kind of associates each of these different platforms and mediums with a certain kind of pornographic um, signature, let's say, right? So there's the amateur, then there's the, you know, the long storyline, and then there's the hardcore porn kind of idea, which is what these <laughs> right, Epic right. Mealtime guys are. And he's tracking the ways that uh, corporate food media is able to kind of tap into bodily desires, like affect, right? Longings, actual kind of visceral longings in like patterned ways. And I love this idea of thinking about the relationship between a genre, you know, like a kind of narrative and a, and a, and a sort of a patterned um, set of longings that are being called forth through these images. Um, I think sort of conceptually it's very smart, but it's also just really powerful way of thinking about how it is that, you know, the food corporations have given us images in place of knowledge about how to actually cook. Yeah. And, and I don't know about anybody else, but the description of the chef and the corn dog. <laughs> was so, good. so if nobody minds, I actually highlighted it to read because I was like, nothing, nothing is going to capture this better. So essentially he's talking about, um, this, this best food found on a stick show. And so there's a chef, it's a woman, of course, recounting stories of her. I'm, I'm never going to be able to get through this without laughing of her encounters with the corn dog served at Shake Shack in New York city. And this is, this is, and I quote at the outset of her narrative, the camera gives spectators a series of brief close-up shots of the sumptuous phallic shaped mm -hmm. meal. Right. So it's like and he doesn't really go into too much detail, but like you can imagine these like giant, long, phallic shaped corn dogs that she's eating, kind of like the chocolate covered bananas, which are always a joke whenever someone orders those from the ice cream store. But that that you don't really get what you want because you want that to become something it does, because then immediately it shoots back to her talking. It shoots back to food. And so it's sort of like you don't really get either thing. Right. You don't really get a relationship to food in terms of cooking and production and and growing. And you don't really get sex. You just get this never ending production of your want for both that just keeps you consuming right just like you were saying yeah but i the corn dog thing was just perfect yeah and there's that kind of stuff like throughout the whole chapter it's pretty wild yeah it's great it's very clever um yeah so i loved i loved this chapter i thought it was uh, a very and it was a cool contrast to sort of i thought the heritage chapter which is much more i think 
reclamatory. And this one is much more critical of the way that, like you said, like, like food network, especially has just turned food into a consumption object that just like really could drive one crazy. I mean, if you think about it, what I really like about Casey's chapter is I think about on the meta critical uh, level is the way uh-huh. able to weave in a lot of these newer critical tools with some of the older rhetorical tools. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you take one of these sort of older rhetorical ideas of genre theory and he's able to weave so seamlessly uh, affect into it and make it into right. a comprehensible tool and show uh, how you could use it in such an incisive fashion that I think it is really excellent as an exemplar of what good criticism looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I felt similarly about your chapter. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So congratulations yeah. all around. All right. So does anybody want to say anything else about that? And then I thought we'd move on to Donovan's uh, more than a membrane. Well, I, I, I guess that come to think of it, these two chapters might pair up fairly nicely because I was just thinking to myself, like Casey or Casey Kelly gives us a really nice, powerful analysis of the um, sort of deterministic relations between, you know, viewership and consumption coming from corporate food sites and so on. Um and I find myself wondering, all right, so what do we do? You know, like, where do we, right, right, where do right. we find ourselves now and how do we kind of deal with this? And, and I guess that sort of tees up my chapter a little bit, um, which is the most kind of explicitly about the question of the political, right? And, and when I was writing mine, um, it was actually, I remember this pretty vividly. It was after the Trump election, the 2016 election. And I remember myself being kind of angry with the postmodern left, <laughs> Rightly or wrongly, I just and this is where I identified myself coming out of grad school is like, you know, this this idea of we need to get past reason and the rational and, you know, the tyranny of reason and so on. We need to embrace experimentalism and play and and the irrational and, and the theatrical and so on. And along comes a presidential figure who is doing that, but for all the wrong reasons, essentially. Right. And so it's yep, like yep. postmodernism gone wrong. And I, and then, so I found myself frustrated with like, oh crap, things can really twist in ways that, you know, we didn't expect, um, using our concepts, right. Or our ideas about right. engagement. Well, and, and you, and you had people saying that, right. You had, you had people coming out and being like, this is all postmodernism's fault on the like, <laughs> blogs, right? Like this is what you wanted and this is what you got. And it was like, oh, damn. Well, if we'd known that, maybe we yeah. wouldn't have felt differently, but you never know. I mean, you I, never I mean, know I mean postmodernism is always a, uh, yeah, an easy, you know, whipping boy. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Um, so that was the impetus. And so I, that's where I got sort of, um, attached to these ideas of the social versus the political or the distinctions between the social and the political. And I'd been very keen on this new venture called Local by Roy Choi and uh, Daniel Patterson. Roy Choi, some people probably familiar, the food truck, the Kogi food truck guy, um, really important mm-hmm. voice and and presence. In the, and I think Justin would probably call him a public chef intellectual. He's got a great series out right now called Broken Bread, which I actually want to plug because it's really important kind of food, social justice type show. Um, I have a, a grad student writing her project on that that show. It's really great. So I was grappling with this sort of the distinctions between the social and the political or this question of like um, what, I, what I'm struggling with, with invisible influence, right? It's like how it is that um, these two chefs who are really, really smart when it comes to like what's good, what's bad, what's what's healthy, what's unhealthy, you know, what's sustainable and unsustainable. 
And they're basically taking all of that and cloaking it inside of this really sort of garbagey vessel, right? Which is fast food and cheap food. I was fascinated by this decision, right? It's like, why are you trying to sneak something good inside of something bad? And it was sort of like, well, we give up, you know, there's no point arguing. There's no point trying to convince people. Words, persuasion, arguments, information, these things no longer have any kind of force. And so we can't reason with people. We need to just inject the good straight into them kind of idea. And it seemed really both clever and sneaky and and troubling. So that's sort of where the chapter, the, the the essay took off is is the importance of thinking about distinctions between this and that. And so, you know, in coming out of Kelly's uh, Casey's chapter, right? It's like this sort of ocean of affective desire that that is generated through all of these pornographic images of food. My chapter then kind of responds by saying, "All right, but what's you know, how do we think about the limits of this experience, right? And how can we understand what is and what is not something that we want to um, call food or not food, right? And and when you get into the research on the kind of the technology and the science and the processing of all this stuff, it's like, what's food anymore, right? Right. So to me, if you extend this thinking out, then where we end up in terms of like how to think about ecology politically distinctions do matter because otherwise it's just this big kind of ocean of stuff. Right. Um, and so there's a little bit of frustration pushing that analysis, but I also think it's worth stating. Yeah. Um, Justin, did you want to say something? Cause I just, in terms of grounding this for an audience that hasn't read the book, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the bleeding veggie burger. Oh, well, as, as like an example, Justin, what'd you want to say? I was going to say the distinctions argument is sort of what we're, we were making in the terroir, right? The, the claim terroir and topoi, right? The need to make arguments to introduce differences is important. Otherwise, right. when things get homogenized, it's easy to lose place of things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's and it's and it's so easy then for like corporations to push an agenda that w- w- at some point that there's a quote like people are neither fed nor fed well. I can't remember where it is. Sorry, I didn't underline it. It just kind of stuck with me. But right. That's that's like the desire for the corporate structure, right? That people consume, but they're neither fed nor fed well. That might be in and around the kind of the cheap food. Raj yeah, Patel, so. Jason Moore wrote this really. I think, it is. I think, it's, I think it's Raj Patel. Yeah. Yeah. So they have this really cool book on cheap cheapness, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. And you ha- so you talk about this bleeding in terms of like just stuffing the good inside the bad. Mm-hmm. You have this like idea of this bleeding veggie burger, which I had not thought about. I mean, we've heard a lot recently, especially about like the 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 Beyond Burgers being really like popular, but I didn't know about like wanting to make these vegetables look like they were bleeding to kind of trick people, like you said, to eating the good in the bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you want to talk a little bit about that just in terms of the audience so they understand what you mean by that concept? You bet. This this was starting to, to emerge a little bit as I was writing. So this is already a yeah. couple of years ago, and it was right. already at that time sort of full force development. And I was keeping a, a close eye on any news item I could find about the bleeding veggie burger, right? The whole idea being, we're not asking... This is not like who's the intended audience. It's not vegans. It's not vegetarians. It's, in fact, meat eaters who cannot, again, they can't argue themselves out of, out of eating these, these, these things, hamburgers, whatever. So let's stop asking them to be persuaded 
and let's just give them the thing that they want, except it's not the thing that they want. It's it's right. a better thing, right? It's this magical plant-based patty down to the, I talk about it as this sort of digital copy. In fact, as I was reading it right. this morning, I was thinking about like 4K, 8K, like what's the level of definition on televisions now? It's like, right, that's right. where we're going with hamburger patties made out of plants. It's like the, the high definition, you know, plant-based burger. So yeah, yeah. I was just so fascinated by the fact that they were trying to make these things bleed to replicate in a kind of digital fashion, that experience of eating a regular hamburger, right? The lengths that they were going to, the science, the technology, and I hate to say it, but also like the carbon footprint that goes into creating one of these patties versus right. a meat patty. It ends up being a pretty tough call, like which one's actually, you know, obviously we don't want to be eating animals the, way, the, the, the level we are, right? But these things are not like a magic solution by any means. Right. Yeah. And you you make a really great argument on page 121 as you're kind of wrapping up the chapter and, and essentially because like like exactly like back to the question, like why does it matter? You know, carbon footprint. Yeah. But why does it matter for how we think about politics that these beyond burgers are, are saturating our our food sensorium? Right. And so mm-hmm. you say these various forms of social production from local to bleeding vegetables to plant based foie gras to crypto economics miss the prerogative of the political which is to enact critical judgment by drawing qualitative distinctions and s i can never say this word estetizing grievances as bids on alternative future futures yes I can't talk thank you for this reading is a great that. sentence that, it's so nice. good i can't read it out loud and i practiced it i practiced it even more <laughs> embarrassingly <laughs> yeah that's the sort of the big a uh, hurrah moment at the end there. So yeah, that was it's that was it. that was the the big sort of like okay. So what matters here? That's like cards on the table, right? So we 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 should have we got to have the courage to be able to say, look, this is not crap food. This is in fact good food, um, and you should want it because it's good and not crappy. But not, on occasion, go ahead and have the crappy, right? We all like the crappy, but let's not kid ourselves that like we're going to just keep eating the crappy and somehow magically everything's going to work out okay. Um, so that's that's the idea. Well, it made me think. So a long time ago, there was this video that I saw of Jamie Oliver, and he's another one of these. He's like kind of like an old school celebrity chef, and I can't find it anywhere anymore. But essentially what happens is he sits these kids down Mm -hmm. and he shows them like a raw chicken and then he sticks the chicken in a blender and the kids are like, ew. And then he adds like the pink slime, you know, that they make Mm -hmm. like mcdonald's and all the kids are like "Ew!" and then he takes this nasty wad of chicken gross and he turns it into these patties and he breads them and stuff and the kids are like "Ew!" and then he deep fries them and pulls them out and serves it to them and the kids are like yay Mm -hmm. (laughs) right it's like showing them how the sausage is made had no impact on the outcome and i think the video disappeared just because it was so disheartening i don't think anybody wanted it around but it really gets at what you're talking about here, which is like you people like the truth is not what's going to teach people the qualitative distinction necessary to prevent the imminent creep of crap pretending to be beneficial. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying here. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate my, that you bring I mean, up. My affect language is terrible, I will add, too. So trying to grapple with some of these concepts was harder for me than I thought it would be, which is good. I want to be challenged. So that's good. Um, yeah, no, I love that you brought up that example. I, I, I vividly remember watching that that series, uh, Food Revolution, and uh-huh. that that's that's when I first watched that scene. It just really shook me, 
And it really shaped my thinking about food and arguments and persuasion and, and frankly, rhetoric, right? And obviously, it's not a perfect kind of research project, but it tells you something pretty powerful, (laughs) which is, you know, I have a young son, 11 year old, and I can argue with him all day about like how it's not that great to eat, you know, drink so much soda. And if there's a soda in front of him, he can't not drink it. Right. But literally like the, the soda can is a stronger rhetorical agent Mm. than I am in that situation. Right. And so that got me thinking a lot about, well, what is it that actually influences if it's not words and information? And here's the whole show, gang. Like, here's the the disgusting carcass getting munched up in a blender and, and mixed yeah. in with all of these stabilizers and powders and blah, 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 blah. And they still want it, right? And it's like, what do you do, rhetorically speaking, in a situation where you've given everyone the information, you've made the arguments, you've shown them, you've demonstrated, that's Aristotle, right? Like, demonstrate to someone and they should they should believe. But what about when none of that works? So I'm actually sympathetic with yep, Roy, Joy, and Daniel Patterson going, you know what? We can't convince anyone. <laughs> Let's just give it to them. Let's just sneak the carrots in their mac and cheese, essentially, and treat everyone like like children. Um, <laughs> right. You call, the, you call the conclusion delivering the goods, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I, I, I mean, yeah, it's it's an interesting chapter. I mean, I really, I really like that you're playing kind of like you're you're willing to suspend like traditional rules about what's right for the social and think about like you know there are there are real reasons why someone would choose the route of just sneaking the vegetables in, right? Right, and it's a kind of defeatist moment, I think, which is like the parent yeah. who's just like, look, they're never going to eat it. I've got to just puree it and sneak it <laughs> yeah, in exactly. There, right? And I feel like that we've all kind of given up <laughs> in that point. It's like we can't even we can't even relate. We can't even talk to each other. We can't rely on information and we just want what we want. And that gets back to Casey Kelly's chapter, right? It's like mm-hmm. the, the horniness for these for these these products, these these consumables is apparently so intense that, you know, showing people statistics or, you know, giving them really compelling arguments doesn't make much of a dent. So where are we then, mm-hmm. rhetorically speaking, in terms of how to shape the future? Yeah, it's a fast, I mean, it's a fabulous chapter. I mean, bo- both of your chapters were just really good. The whole thing's good. You should be very proud. Be very proud of yourself for this wonderful we book. We think it's I pretty good. It. Yeah, we're happy with the, uh, yeah, you know, we no, got to work great. with some great folks and they brought brought good things to the table. So yeah, um, well, and then, so, the so Greg, Greg Dickinson writes the afterward, and I don't know if um I don't know if you wanna you wanna sum up any themes we haven't talked about yet because obviously there's lots of this book we didn't touch on so I don't know if there's anything pressing that you wanna give a little bit of airtime to before we wrap up. Um, well, I would I would you know there's two other chapters that we didn't really talk about. Yeah, there's let's the talk about them. Rivers and Dickman, which I think is is it's the most kind of theory driven, right? This is about sort of a post structural theory of affect and and mm-hmm. assemblage stuff, but they they're really smart and they organize it in terms of like the stages of making beer, right? And mm-hmm. they're likening rhetoric to intoxication. And so you can think about rhetoric's inventional phases through the phases of making beer. It's really, really not just clever, but actually smart and and important way of thinking about influence. Um, and it's funny because I had actually written a large chunk of the introduction. Um, and then I reread what they had done. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, am I stealing from them? Like this whole business of influence <laughs> is really important, um, ecologically speaking. So I appreciate their chapter. And then Jeff Rice's chapter is also really interesting. It's, it's maybe the most sort of 
unique in the in the group because he's offering yeah, that's kind of, interesting. Mm-hmm. He's offering a way of reading that's sort of going against a lot of typical kind of reading practices. And so he's trying to show readers how it is that what we think of as strange, what's strange to us is just, you know, normal essentially to anyone else. And and it's all about mm-hmm. kind of where we stand and our perception. And um, if you mm-hmm. actually look at accounts of eating things like dog or grasshopper or even penis and cannibalism and stuff. But like people Mm -hmm. who engage in these cultures that engage in these kinds of consuming practices, talk about them, write about them in the same way that we write about eating elk or fish or whatever. Right. And so he's just trying to like demystify some of the cultural exoticism that surrounds Mm -hmm. critical readings of other otherness in terms of food practices, which I think is useful and important. You know, it's sort of a, what are the, the broad rhetorical structures, like the narrative conventions and, you know, that you might find in places where they eat things that you think are strange. And lo and behold, there's a lot of sort of shared rhetorical um, uh, narrative devices, let's say. Right. And so um, those, those are the chapters that round out the, the project. Well, yeah. And I, I think, um, I think Jeff Rice's chapter was really good too. And I, like the way these are structured makes a lot of sense because it leads well into your chapter about the membrane and the, and the qualitative distinctions among food, because of course when you read the two chapters together, it suddenly seems so bizarre that you will say eating a cricket is gross, but eating a chicken nugget is not. (laughs) So they really draw each other into relief, I think in good way. And and again, this book is like not judgmental, which I really appreciated. So I think, um, you know, a lot of these food rhetoric books, you pick them up and they're really just a lot of like shitting on fast food. Mm. And I just keep thinking like, you know, we all have a, I mean, we're, we're raised to love that. I mean, it's like really hard not to at least have a little bit of affection for it. And this book I thought was very generous to its reader. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and I felt that way all the way through. And one of those chapters was the rhetorically strange foods was a nice way of saying like, Hey, what you think is, is normal and strange are very much rhetorically constructed, but also no shame, no shame in what's happening. You just have to understand that it's persuasion. All right. Think about the kind of the context of consumption and, and, you know, sure enough, it all makes sense. Just depends on, you know, where you are and where you stand and where you're perceiving from. Um, And there's lots of examples that can go either direction. And I even get at some of those in my chapter early on where I'm talking about like, you know, lobster is disgusting. If you think about it, <laughs> right? Like, right. Well, um, there's like a there's like a stand up by Jim Gaffigan about how gross lobster is. It's really hilarious. Boggles my <laughs> mind that that has become this you know expensive luxury. It's like think about right, it. right, right. Yeah, do the history. It's not great. Yeah, Justin, do you want to hop in? I feel like you've been quiet for a few minutes. Yeah, no, I was just sort of reflecting on how we started with soiled, and you know, one of the controlling metaphors we offer in the introduction is how it's sort of like sedimented how each chapter and you can think about how the book adds up to these different sedimented layers. And when you think about wine or, you know, I'm really into, into uh, whiskeys or how anything that's aged over time with different layers, how each one is an expression that contributes to the whole. And that's sort of how we were envisioning these different chapters, adding up to a complex expression that makes up the book. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there are, you know, we were very intentional about the the organization and arrangement of the different chapters and how they all work together to make a, uh, a, a whole, right. Um, that isn't one argument, but sort of creating a space to start thinking about what is polyvalent production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, gr- I mean, it's a great book. I, I'm, I was excited to have it on the new books network. Cause I think this is really a book for, for people who just want to like read good stuff. 
and don't and which is who our readers are. They're not, you know, advanced grad students or advanced academics in rhetorical theory. They are people who want to like see the world differently using language. And that's exactly what this book does. So I think it's a great book for anyone interested in rhetoric, interested in food, interested in food production, or just, you know, kind of like wanting to see the familiar in new ways. Um, this book is like a great fit for all of those purposes. So thank you so much for the work that you did. Thank you very much. Yeah. And we're coming up on time. Is there anything else that you want to add? Maybe any other takeaways from the book that we missed or, or, or anything you're doing with the project now that is kind of cool? Well, you mentioned Greg Dickinson, and, and we were very pleased that he uh, agreed to write us a little afterward, and he covered mm-hmm. some 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 ground that we didn't uh, – the chapters themselves didn't go deep into. And I like the way that he kind of thematized and drew out sort of everydayness and sociality and bodies and thinking about sort of implications. So I was very happy to have uh, our friend and colleague Greg be able to, to join in and have the kind of last say on the project. Um, beyond that, I think uh, we've covered it pretty well. Um, Justin, what about you? Yeah, no, I'm just really grateful. I thought we worked with an amazing group of authors and this would not be uh, possible without their uh, amazing work and their willingness to revise on our schedule and Mm -hmm. contribute their labor and ideas in the editing process all the way through. And the great, uh, and Donovan was an amazing editor to work with as well. And uh, thanks Dan and the Alabama folk. Yep. Shout out to Dan. Well, with that, we will wrap up. Thank you everyone at home for listening, whether you're in your car or walking around. We hope that you're doing well. Again, today uh, we were pleased to discuss the new book, Cookery, Food Rhetorics and Social Production, edited by Donovan Conley and Justin Eckstein, which you can pick up from the University of Alabama Press, Hot Off the Presses 2020. And I always like to remind everyone that without university presses, the New Books Network probably would not be able to do the work that we do. Also, um, authors and editors like the ones represented in this volume would not get the care and attention to their ideas that they do get. So it's always wonderful to support books that come from university presses. And if you do not wish to pick up a cookery, uh, a copy of cookery for yourself or a friend or a family member, you can also write to your local library through email or put in a request at the desk that they picked up a copy. Better yet, you can buy a hardcover copy from the press and donate it to your local library so that everyone um, in your community can actually benefit from these ideas since obviously we don't all have the means to pick up the book ourselves. And with that, I will say goodbye. Thank you so much, Donovan and Justin, for being here today. Everyone take care of yourselves and be safe. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.